Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Return to the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel is three chapters in length. You can kind of flip through it, and I encourage you to. Like I said, I hope you're keeping your Bibles open or your scripture journals. If you brought those again with us, we'll keep doing our best to provide those for you as we move into the next set of four books. Flip through and just sort of get to know the flow of this book in Joel, three chapters in length, so it's something that maybe we can, we can handle this morning, maybe grasping the structure. What's interesting is there's a number of ways that you can look at the structure of Joel. You have chapter one that's pretty clear. It's a sort of one, seems like one big unit. Then chapter two has a couple different sections in it. He sort of changes theme and direction in the middle of the chapter, and chapter three is by and large one large unit. And yet, as I was reading through this over and over again during the course of this week and got some help from one particular uh, commentary, one of the things that became clear is there is a chiastic structure, all right? Uh, I, I take no joy in using words that I don't know except for I looked it up, okay? But a chiastic structure is a structure that sort of goes in one way and then sort of goes back out following the same path. One way to do it is if you were to outline the structure of the first half of this book, it communicates the main idea that Joel has to tell to us through repetition. I'll put it this way. It begins by telling the story of a locust plague that's already happened. We would call that A in a chiastic structure, section A, all right? And then it goes on to a northern army, okay? So we move from A with the locust plague to B with a northern army, and then we move to a third theme, and that's repentance, and you might call that C. Back when we were in Mark, we talked about Mark on sandwiches, right, and how you had this two big ideas with this, the meat of the sandwich in the middle that was the main idea that was being communicated. Same thing's going to happen here. We move from the locust plague to the northern army and then to repentance, and then we actually move back out to a resolution of the northern army, and then we move back out to a restoration after that locust plague. Do you see how that works? It's a chiastic structure because it's referring to the Greek letter uh, chi. It's an X, and so you can kind of see there's an X being formed here. And, uh, and so the, really the meat of what Joel has to teach us in the first half of this book is actually about that middle portion. Do you remember what it was? Remember C? Repentance. A call to repentance in the midst of a locust plague that has already come, a northern army that is coming soon. There is a call to repentance, a message of rescue, and a word of restoration. So this is what we're going to look at. What happens then is actually another chiasm. I won't go into all of it, but basically the, the idea is that they re, the, the people are called to respond to the day of the Lord. One of the ways that I would structure this first half of the book, and I hope that by giving you this, it's not just so we can talk about structures and authors and stuff like that. 
but so that you might have a little bit better access. I find that I understand books better when I sort of understand the flow of where the book is going. I hope this helps you. That I would argue that there are, in sort of as we go deeper into the chiastic structure, what we're actually getting is a threefold response to the day of the Lord. A threefold response to the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 1, we'll look at the first response. The call in Joel chapter 1 is to respond to the day of the Lord with lament as the people look back on a locust plague. A locust plague has recently hit. Look at verses 1 through 4. Where the Lord came to Joel about all that we know about this guy is he's the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children, their children to another generation. Something has happened that is so monumental that the elders among the people don't remember something this bad, this locust plague. And it's so bad that you're going to want to tell your grandchildren about that disaster, where you were when you first heard about the locust plague, right? Verse four, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is a scene, and it is a scene of complete destruction wrought by this locust plague. Joel goes on in chapter one to tell the story by drawing attention to different segments of society that following the destruction wrought by these different kinds of locusts, I, I don't know, are these species of locusts or is, he just, is it just a poetic device that's saying, look, they just kept on coming and each one that came, it wrought more destruction on the remnants of what was before it. And so what he does is after this, this locust plague has worked its way through and wreaked havoc on the land, there are different people who respond different ways. Look at verse five. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Who's the first person that's called upon to lament? I think it's interesting. The drunkards, the drinkers of wine. Why are they weeping? How can you wake up a drunkard? Well, you tell him there's no more sweet wine. Well, that's how you wake him up. That's how you get his attention. There's no more sweet wine because the locusts ate the grapes. And when those locusts went on, the locusts that came after ate the branches of the vine. And the locusts came after those ones. They ate the vine itself. And then the destroying locusts came and they ate everything that was left. There's no more sweet wine. Those who live in excess and debauchery, their party has come to an end. So that's the first call. Lament, you partiers. Wake up and observe your party isn't going to go on forever. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. She was betrothed. There, there was a husband for her. There are few scenes in a community of, of celebration that are more vibrant than a wedding. A woman waiting for her bridegroom is celebrating with her, her sisters and her 
friends awaiting this day. She's known this day for a long time. She's known about this, this man that she's going to marry, and you would expect celebration. But the locusts come. They've destroyed everything. Perhaps they've even destroyed the occupation and the career of the one that she was about to marry, and there's no future for them any morning and so, anymore. And so instead of the scene of great celebration, what's left? A scene of mourning. What's left? Lament. And then in verses 9 and 13, we have the priests mourning. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. So the priests mourn. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Here's the deal. There's no more grain. It's all eaten. There's not more grain coming because all of the seed, all of the, the, the farming implements, all of the field, it's just destroyed. There's no more grain, there's no more wine, there's no more oil, there's no offering for temple worship. And so the way of the priesthood is destroyed. The way of the worship of the people is destroyed, which leads pretty obviously to the next one, which is verse 11, the farmers. Be, be ashamed O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers. No more fruit, no more grain. They've labored in the field, but there's no harvest. Anything that they'd put in the ground, it's gone. And then verse 14, the elders of the congregation, what are they supposed to do? Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. You could, what, what's the theme, all right? We just went through just about all of them. The theme is a call to lament, a call to mourning, to, to acknowledge what has taken place, to see it clearly and name the effects of the plague on the land. It's time for the mature leaders of the community to gather together and to cry out to the Lord. Note, this is not, this is so important, this is not a business meeting. Let's get the elders of the community, the mature who have maybe seen things happen before, but we've already seen, they've never seen anything like this. Let's call them together and have them solve the problem, right? Surely they know what to do when locusts come. No, they don't. This is not a business meeting. They gather to cry out to the Lord. There's one last group. I find this one really interesting. Look at verses 18 and 20. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer, verse 20. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. I don't know what all has gone wrong, but it's so wrong that even the water of the land is no longer accessible to either the people or the beasts of the field. No pasture, the beasts groan, the cattle are perplexed, and the beasts pant. We can learn something from this biblical response to disaster. Disaster has already struck. This is not a prophet speaking about a locust plague that is about to come. He's saying this has already happened and nothing like this has happened in a long, long time. What do we do? What do we do? Wail, lament, cry out. We ought to, following the biblical pattern, following disaster, we ought to weep, lament, and mourn. And this disaster that 
happens in the midst of the lives of these people, and if disaster has ever come to your house, the call is to drive us to the Lord in genuine lament. Uh, Let's just put it this way. It's not probably right to go directly from disaster. Well, the Lord is always always on his throne. Everything will be okay. That's true. The Lord is on his throne, and he hears the cries of his people. So you can go to him and weep. God, this feels like disaster because it really is. Help, O oh Lord. I think of our times of prayer at the beginning of COVID pandemic. I know I'd never seen it. I know my parents had never seen anything like it. My grandparents had seen uh, perhaps very difficult days and even disease. But that feels so very far off. We were right to go to the Lord and quickly cry out and lament in prayer. In our house, we had a whiteboard that we just leaned up against a cabinet in, in our house as we were quarantining there in those very early days. And we just kept a list of the people who were in the hospital, a list of the people who were sick, the list of people who had lost loved ones. Some of those people are in this room, and we were right, right? We were right to cry out and lament before the Lord. All this we do before the Lord. Why before the Lord? And it's the locust plague. What's he got to do with it? Verse 15. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. The prophets are consistent in seeing the hand of the Lord is sovereign in history, even and especially in the midst of disaster. We ought not to shrink back from the idea that the Lord remains the sovereign sitting on his throne right in the midst of disaster. We are right to talk to the sovereign about what's taking place in the midst of his, the, the creation over which he is sovereign. But there's a very specific reason why Joel would have the people go before the Lord because, because of the locust plague. At the heart of the lament is verse 16. Verse 16, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. See, his concern isn't merely that he doesn't have something to eat. His concern is that there is nothing available for sacrifice at the temple. This is the way they worshipped. It was, again, thinking about those early days, it was right that we said, how in the world does this work for the people of God to worship in the middle of this disaster? And we fought and and did our best, and I'm sure we were wrong many times in our response. But the desire and the longing and the pleading before the Lord and our labor in the midst of the congregation was to worship. To long to gather, to long to be the people. But in the midst of the locust plague, sacrifice and fellowship at the temple has been cut off. Remember the purpose of God in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. Why did he do that? Because he was just really hard up for a people to, to call his people to make them a nation. There were already nations. He could have just made them his people. Right? No, he calls Israel out of Egypt for the express purpose that they would go and worship him. What is the Lord doing in establishing a people for himself? Worship. 
And so if worship of the people is ever cut off because of a locust plague so that there's no longer sacrifice possible at the temple for the people to worship, their main cause for crying before the Lord ought to be there's no food in the land. There's no grain offering. There's no drink offering. How can we worship the Lord? The heart of the life of the people is the worship of the Lord in his temple, and it's been cut off because of no sacrifice. So this is what Joel is about. He's about calling the people back to a worship of the Lord. This recent experience of plague is used as a backdrop, though. It's actually not what the whole of the book is about. It's not about a locust plague. It's a previous disaster that had gone before. The call in Joel is actually to use that locust plague as a backdrop for a looming disaster of a coming invading army that we meet in chapter 2. And that instru- the destruction of that army is even more severe than the locust plague that had come before it. Here's how one commentator puts it. Joel used the immediate crisis facing the original audience to move toward eschatological and ultimate issues. Yes, there has been a locust plague. But there is something that coming that is so severe, it's cataclysmic and cosmic in its scope. Lament looking back on the locust plague, but hear what he has to say next as warning. Warning looking forward to the northern army. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? What is being described in chapter 2, 1 through 11, is an army. This army that comes, comes to exercise the judgment of the Lord upon the people of Israel. Though it's a foreign invader... Verse 11 presents this army as the Lord's army. That's shocking. We're going to see that when we come to Habakkuk as well. Shocking that the Lord would use a foreign army to bring about his justice among his people. The theme of this passage is the day of the Lord. An army is coming. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. You hear the warning? Sound an alarm, a warning, because this is the day of the Lord, and there is an alarm that needs to be sounded because the invader is coming. In verse 3, we're told that it's like a a fire that devours before him and a flame that burns whatever is left behind. You can hear the images of the locust plague, right? You can visualize both the front line of the locust plague devouring everything and the front line of fire destroying everything in its path. And it turns out it's not fire and it's not locusts. In verse 4 and 5, it's actually horses and chariots. These verses resonated with an imagery of a locust plague rumbling. You can see it in the the passage, verse 5. Rumbling, leaping, crackling, and devouring. That's how this army is described. And they're coming, Israel. They're coming. Verses 6 through 9 such powerful images. Before them, all peoples in anguish, all their faces grow pale. Why? Because the warriors, they charge, they scale the wall. 
They burst through defensive weapons. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls, and they climb into houses. Like, you think you have defenses about this army that's coming. You didn't have defenses against the locusts, and you don't have defenses against them. They climb upon walls and into houses. There is no worldly defense. And you you pause there, right? Say, okay, I I should make note of that. That's important. The elders are not going to get together and solve the problem of the coming army. This is not a call to a military cabinet. Warning, gather and prepare for war. Verses 10 and 11 make that all the more clear. Verse 10 and 11, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw from their shining. This army is presented as cataclysmic and apocalyptic. What is coming is like the end. How can you deal with a disaster like that that's cosmic in scope and divine in origin? The fact is, what Joel is trying to communicate with all of this language is there is no worldly solution. There's no cabinet meeting. There's no military strategy. And there's nothing that the elders have seen that they can draw upon their wisdom to come up with a solution. There is no worldly solution, which is why verse 11 ends the way it does. For the day of the Lord is great. Very awesome. And then this question, who can endure it? I think this is one of the most important little phrases in the prophets. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Seems to me nobody. It seems to me that that Joel has actually gone out of his way to pretty much preclude everything anyone from coming up with a solution by which the people might possibly endure what's coming. Malachi 3.2 says much the same. We'll come to it later, but it says this for now. Malachi 3.2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I think we need to sit down before that and get ourselves under that. Like, what it means is nobody. Nobody. We don't like that. We can fix anything. Give our scientists enough time. Get the right politicians in the right places. Let the big tech firms develop some device to help us out, some communication means we can fix it. That's guttural in us. We believe that. In our culture, we're so accustomed to developing some technology to solve every one of our problems, or political leaders to, to resolve issues that confront us. But Joel brings us to the end of ourselves and asks this question, who can endure it? What's it gonna take? When our world is shaken by events that break through the defenses of our technologies, our politics, and our affluence, what do we do? 
I would suggest that we're entering into just such a time in our own history. Man, I would love it if no locust plagues came. I would love it if no invading armies came. I would love it if there were no problems coming down the pipe, right? But I feel like we would be foolish not to heed a warning in our moment. Because even in a land of safety where there's nothing coming down the pipe, we're fools to trust in lesser things and worldly things rather than the Lord. Because he is coming. He is coming. I'm no prophet. I'm not. I certainly don't want to be quoted as suggesting that either a plague or an invading army is coming. But we seem to be living in a moment where many of our previous expectations and and patterns of safety seem to be eroding. So this question, who can endure, that the people are confronted with, in our passage, seems to, to draw upon, man, maybe what we need is the Lord. If what we have a, is, is a cosmic issue, apocalyptic, cataclysmic, and it's of divine origin, perhaps who we ought to talk to is the Lord. Friends, that's blessing and not curse. I'm I'm not pleased with what I see taking place around me in so many facets in the world. I just feel like I'm being confronted almost every other day with something else that I'm like, that's twisted. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't work. It's so worldly. But I think that seeing this, we are living in a moment of blessing and not curse if we will go to the Lord. Because the things that maybe my own parents grew up with as safeties around them, wound up deceiving me to think I was safe in them. Do you see? Perhaps the problem is not our prior security in technology, politics, affluence. Perhaps it was a distraction from divine reality. So much of our nets of safety and our structures and our hopes are actually a distraction from divine reality. It's the Lord who is great and very awesome. I know that in these days, I'm being driven to seek and to remember grounding realities. What is great and awesome? And I'll tell you, by Sunday afternoon, I will be distracted about something great and awesome. That's not. Today, what are you distracted by? I'm just curious. What are you thinking about? I know I I got plans this afternoon. I got three things I have yet to do today. And some of them I'm really excited about. What are you excited about? I can tell you right now, it's been messing with me working through this text because I'm kind of messed up excited about some of the things that I'm doing. Some of the safeties and plans and pleasures I have. Today, what are you distracted right now? What are you distracted by? When the foundations we're standing on begin to shake, when there's a sense that there is a fire that's leaping and devouring things in which we so recently placed our security, it is called opportunity to observe our own misplaced hope. It's not an opportunity to say, okay. That's being destroyed. How can we build another layer of defense? 
It's an opportunity for us to come before the Lord and say, God, I'm sideways. No. I think we're sideways, God. Help. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. It's, it's where we get some of our definition of what worship is. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay? You got what it said so far? We have something that can't be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Is that what our worship looks like? Is that what's going on in your heart in worship? When our foundations shake and our hopes and our comforts are shaken, it is quite likely that our hopes are in a wrong kingdom and we're trusting in a wrong king because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we have that kingdom. And so in our cultural moment, we have a blessing of clarity. We know what's true. And so if we feel ourselves being shaken to the core of our securities, thank you, God, for that clarity. I must be grounded in some alternative worldly kingdom where you're not on the throne. It's this clarity to which Joel calls us. It is a call to return and to remember. And that's why he goes where he goes. That's why the center of the, of the sandwich, so to speak, of the, the, the chiasmus is, is, is where it is. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 19. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 19 are a call to return and remember the covenant of the Lord. Return to me, verse 12 says, yet even now, declares the Lord, even now, the army's coming. It's coming. I love Habakkuk. I mean, the army is on the march. It will be going through the land. The question is, who's going to survive it when it comes? When the worldly disaster comes, who makes it through? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. These are the behaviors of dependence. Fasting, mourning, weeping. And we, like, it's almost like there's something wrong with you in our culture if you do one of these three things. Oh, you must be depressed. You should see a therapist, right? Well, very much perhaps. But perhaps one of the things that's actually healthy in your life is that you would mourn and weep. These are the behaviors of dependence, fasting, because we can only be satisfied with what the Lord provides. Weeping. Because the Lord hears the cry of the suffering. Weep. Mourn. Because the Lord comforts the afflicted with his steadfast love. We don't have to be afraid of these things. Perhaps we need a practice of these things. Verse 13 makes it clear. This, this fasting, weeping, and mourning is not a show. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he's gracious and merciful. It reminds me of that Psalm 51 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, a broken, contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He won't despise. He won't reject. He won't hold at arm's length the one who comes to him with need. What does the Lord respond to? When we find ourselves in sin, when we find ourselves in an idolatrous pattern, trusting in things that cannot truly satisfy or rescue, when we've built up defenses that have made our lives feel secure, and then something presses on one of them and we freak out, you know, the Lord will not despise those who come to him independent in humility. God, I built a structure and it's not holding. What is going on? Psalm 34, verse 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We don't have to be afraid. The Lord hears his people. Joel 18, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. You who fasted, crying out to me, you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The people have asked, Who Perhaps, perhaps the Lord will repent. Perhaps, they said in verse 14. And here we have our answer. The Lord will not despise the contrite heart. This passage in Joel is about repentance, but the heart of repentance is actually dependence or faith. It's not, oh, we see what we did wrong. Not gonna do that anymore, I'll tell you that right now. We're gonna get our act together in a way of the law perfectly this time. I've said that before. What's needed is, oh, Lord God, have mercy. Have mercy on us. It's easy to think of repentance on the one hand as a mere changing of behavior. And on the other hand, as a mere religious confession. Like, God, I'll do better next time. Or, God, yeah, I did that. My bad. Thank goodness you're forgiving. Joel calls the people to rather not either of these, but rather to a genuine sorrow for sin that is more than a religious show. There's a warning against both pretending and performing. This is a theme that works its way through all of the minor prophets, performing that we should just try to do better. I mean, you, defend, you depend on that defense. You build the wall of your own perfection against the invading armies. You've tried it before. It's not going to work. The wall of pretending to just try, over, try to cover over the depth of our sin with religious behaviors. See, God, we're, we're still doing all the right things. And he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. I see you're wailing, but you're not actually crying out to me. You're crying out to you and your religious performance. What does it look like to rend your hearts in the light of of the fact that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Friends, it means to depend upon the Lord. It's to come to him in an honest confession that, listen, unless the Lord is merciful, I'm lost. See, that's not pretending. Unless I get my act together, I'm lost. That's pretending. 
unless the Lord is merciful, I'm lost. It's an honest confession. We can't cover over our circumstance with worldly answers, and we can't cover our sin with pretending and performing. And it just so happens the Lord is merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We remember the central disaster of both the locusts and the army is that sacrifice and and fellowship at the temple have been cut off. And Joel suggests that the longing of the people should be a restoration of worship. I would join Joel in suggesting that true repentance looks like keeping the worship of the Lord at the center of our purpose in repentance. And and by that, I I, I don't mean hyper-individualistic, I'll just be more oriented toward God. I mean what Joel talks about over and over, call a congregation. Let there be an assembly of the people. That there would be a people together who above all things prioritize we belong to the Lord and our only hope, church, is that the Lord is merciful. So let's gather together. Let's sing songs that remind him. Let's proclaim songs that others in, the, in our midst might hear it. Let's open up the word that we might remember what has gone wrong with the world that we've trusted in the things of this world rather than in the Lord for our hope, joy, and satisfaction. We've trusted in our ability to defend ourselves rather than in the mercy of the Lord. So that when trial comes, it is an opportunity to be drawn back to the worship of the Lord at the center of our hope. What follows is actually another chiasmus. We have in in chapter two, at the end of the chapter, we have judgment of the northern army beginning in verse 20. And then we have grace with rain being poured out on the land. And then we have grace with the Spirit being poured out on the people at the end of chapter two. And then chapter three, we kind of go back and we have judgment again upon the nations. Rescue and restoration, the focus of the second half of Joel is on rescue and restoration. In verses 21 and 22, we have this call, fear not, fear not, be glad. Yes, destruction has been great, but the rescue of the Lord is greater still. This has been a theme that's made its way into my mind and heart over the course of recent years, that there is something even greater than creation perfection. The thing that is even greater than creation perfection is glorious redemption. This is the story that the Lord has chosen to tell. And this world is a world where we are amazed by rescue. Verses 26 and 27 speak of eschatological end times, glorious final restoration and protection. I would note that just like Amos, the Lord is concerned for his name in the midst of the people who belong to him. One of the greatest gifts of the minor prophets is that they've given us that in light of salvation, our salvation comes into the midst of the reality of judgment. I don't like talking about this. I'd rather just say, look, Jesus took our judgment. Do we need to really talk about it anymore? Yeah, he did. 
He is the one that has fulfilled all of the judgment that really all of what is taking place in our study of the minor prophets is that the, out, the, the, the playing out of the judgment that the Lord promised in the covenant. And all of that judgment winds up finding its focus in the person of Jesus Christ upon whom all of the covenant judgment was laid upon him in the place of those who would cry out to him in faith. And what we're doing is we're studying, man, who shall stand? All those who take refuge in him. Who is going to stand? Who's going to pass through the impending judgment? Oh, there is a man. It just so happens There is a man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he endured both the judgment and he secured life. Friends, I I know it's simple. So much of what has been said is it takes a labor to, to, to really penetrate through our hardness of heart. But really, at the end of the day, it is really quite simple. It is a call to give attention to Jesus. That's actually what the New Testament does with Joel. In Acts chapter 2, Peter applies this passage of Joel at the end of Joel chapter 2. He applies this passage with these words. It's actually the same words as from Joel. Acts chapter 2, chapter verses 37 and 39 say, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, after hearing this, this, uh, the call of, of how the, the Spirit will come and dwell among the people and, and give them dreams and words and a call to repentance, uh, Peter applies this sermon on the prophet Joel to a people who were cut to the heart, rightly so. Hasn't that been the message of Joel the whole time? To be cut to the heart, to be driven to cry out to mercy, and he says this, They cry out to Peter in Acts chapter 2, Brothers, what shall we do? Who can survive the impending judgment? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Take shelter in your one defense. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You yourselves. The gift that you've seen coming and through whom the apostles have been proclaiming in the streets of Jerusalem. You will receive the very presence of the Spirit of God. For the promise is for you. And for your children. ah, And for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The presence of the Lord should lead us to repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken his place on the cross. The one who was perfect, made flesh, lives the only perfect life, and yet dies in the place of sinners. This leads us to repentance and says, Lord, it is only mercy like that by which I can be saved. Repentance because of a warning of judgment? Yes. And repentance because of a promise of blessing. There's a warning that if Jesus has not died for you, if you have not taken shelter in him, all of the judgment remains for you. 
We would do well to read the prophets and say, man, all of that is reserved for me. But that I am in Christ and his mercy and grace. But because I am in him, all that is reserved for me is life. Eternal life in the Christ. Perfect refuge. In this world there will be many troubles. But I have a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so there is a promise and a hope. Friends, I hope that you've received Joel this morning. I hope that you've been given a glimpse at a book that you can open and in prayerful reading, read it all the way through the end of chapter three and know that this is God's gift to us. Prophet belong, the prophet belongs to us. And the center of this book, as is often the case with the prophets, is a call to genuine faith-filled repentance. So Joel asked the question, who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Who knows? We do. We know that he will turn and relent. Brothers and sisters, we know because we know his steadfast love, that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, Joel has given us a gift. It's an opportunity to examine our hope Examine our securities. I mean, I actually do that. Think hard about it. In prayerful relationship, in the midst of the table fellowship that you have this afternoon, and at community group, let us consider, especially in the world in which we live, in which there's so much ground that's shifting underneath of us, there is no technological answer coming. There's no political answer coming, even though it is the dominant religion of our age false. There's no affluence that can shelter us from the day of the Lord. Our one shelter is Christ. So much of Joel is about the day of the Lord, a day of impending judgment, right? But you know what my favorite verse in the New Testament is? I know it's hard to narrow down this way, but it's one that I've clung to for 20 years now. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, Man, if the Bible tells me something to be sure about, I feel unsure about everything these days. And yet, Philippians tells me, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that's called? That's the day of the Lord. That's the day of the Lord that remains for me. To be brought to completion into the kingdom of my Redeemer. Heavenly Father, I want to live in the ground of that reality. I want to heed the warning and run to the Christ. I pray that you would form a people, a congregation who belong to you and that you are solidifying that you are not only our hope, you are the hope of anyone in Brevard County that we would go and make known your mercies to our neighbors and our coworkers and even those who are far off from our particular house, that we would go and make known refuge that can be found in the Christ, and that we would stop preaching a false gospel with our vain hopes and our troubles and worries, but we would preach a surety and a confidence in our Redeemer. 
Thank you, God. We trust you for this. We, we know the hope, the love, the completion that is in the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And we long for it, the day of your appearing. We want to see you, the very face of our consuming God. Keep us, bless us in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.